is Sonny Landreth, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is Steve Morse, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Ted Nugent, and I am the Iron City Rocks guy. Hello and welcome to episode 231 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music talk on the net. Episode 231, we've got two special guests, uh, both talking about projects uh, that involve books. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting segue into a show that we also do called the Heavy Metal Book Club, which is at heavymetalbookclub.com. So this episode is going to be kind of a dual purpose. First, we've got author Alan Paul, who, uh, for those of you in the Pittsburgh area like myself, Alan is a Pittsburgh product, grew up in the area uh, before moving to New York. He's got a great new book out called One Way Out, which is is honestly a fantastic book on the Allman Brothers Band. Uh, as, as a person myself, I grew up, I was not a huge Allman Brothers fan. Uh, Eric, who is uh, one of our co-hosts, kind of turned me on to Eat It Peach and uh, Live at the Fillmore. More into my 20s, I uh, started to get into the band and, and really appreciate them and became a very big fan of Government Mule, uh, which is a band, I think, a little bit more of a rock-oriented band than a jam band. Um, so really got interested in, in the band, but not uh, the historical aspect of the band. I knew the greatest hits and things like that. So Alan's book came along and picked it up and, and really could not put it down. As I said to Alan... Uh, in our conversations, his book got me so interested in the band that I went out and bought Greg Allman's book before I was even done with Alan's book. So really a fantastic read. So we're going to get into that interview with Alan in just a moment. Also joining us on the show, we have a name who, if you're in the western Pennsylvania area, uh, almost uh, is synonymous with live concert events, uh, Rich Engler, uh, who was part of the successful DeCesar Engler Productions uh, which hosted many of the great concerts in the Pittsburgh area from the 70s and 80s. I know many, many of the ticket stubs in my own personal collection have uh, Mr. Engler's name on them. He's got a great uh, book out, kind of a um, look back at his career, uh, which is, is just a stellar with just the coolest experiences stuff. So Eric was uh, kind enough to talk to Rich about that so we're going to get into those interviews uh, we're going to lead off with alan paul and talk about his book one way out
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce to you, uh, hailing from originally from the Western Pennsylvania area, author Alan Paul, who's got a great new book out called One Way Out, The Inside History of the Allman Brothers Band. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, first off, um, you, you were originally from our neck of the woods uh, oh, yeah. here in Western Pennsylvania. You want to talk a little bit about where you, where you grew up? Sure. I grew up in Squirrel Hill, okay. and I grew up hanging out in Squirrel Hill in Oakland, all over Pittsburgh, and my folks are still there, and I have, uh, you know, really deep ties. Like my, my passions are the Allman Brothers and uh, the Steelers and the Pirates, pretty much. So I drove, uh, drove in from Maplewood, New Jersey, where I live now, just outside New York, uh, to Pittsburgh last October uh, to go to the Pirates uh, well, playoff game with my dad and it was just great i was i was completely exhausted when i got back i was just finishing the book i could really not afford to take 36 hours off and drive but uh you know i had to do it so it was it was, it was totally cool one of the best sports events i've ever been to yeah it's like haley's comet you really can't pass that opportunity up you know we, you know to go say you're going to a pirate baseball game you know at home it's been 20, what, four years, 23 years, I think? Yeah, and, and, and I had spent, you know, I was one of the, I'm one of the crazy guys who was still following them through all those years. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, knew the batting averages of all these, all these horrible players they had. So, um, you know, it was a thrill. It was great. It's, it's an important part of me and who I am. Exactly, yeah. We, we suffered through Jason Bay and, uh, you know those guys and Jason. You get it. We didn't suffer through Jason Bay. There's a lot more suffering than Jason <laughs> Bay. Yeah. How about Mike Kingsbury? That's yeah, suffering. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I hear you. It's, we it's, could talk all day on that. But let me let me ask, what kind of turned you on to the Almond Brothers? I mean, because I know you, you know you and I both grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, I was aware of the Almond Brothers, but you know, in the era when I grew up, I think hard rock, heavy metal was a little bit of a bigger influence on me. Right. The Almond Brothers took me a while. To kind of come around, a coworker of mine had, had kind of forced E to peach on me. Uh, but what, what kind of turned you on to the band? Well, probably the first first thing was just hearing them on the radio all the time uh, uh-huh. when I was a kid with brothers and sisters like Jessica and, and Ramba Man, uh, probably on DVE mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. Um, and my brother, I have an older brother who's four years older than me, hung out with a lot of musicians. That was sort of his crowd, and. Um, you know, he he just got me going on it. Really, he handed me a copy of Eat a Peach and said, "Check this out." And I dug in and I got into it. And I don't know, nothing ever captured my imagination in quite the same way. I obviously, love lots of other music, um, but that just that just completely, you know, took right. my breath away and 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 you know, never really stopped. And you know, Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania is a huge market uh, for the Allman Brothers, also more, more so for Leonard Skinner, mm-hmm. um, you know, which it kind of takes that, the Allman Brothers, and then tilts a little bit towards the hard rock, I guess, a little, little more so. Um, but, yeah, at one point, one of the guys from Skinner told me that Pittsburgh was one of the very best markets. So, Yeah, and you can see that. I mean, it's got kind of the, the same kind of mentality. I mean, Skinner... You know, when you think about it, probably does, as you mentioned, go a little more towards the rock and hard rock. Where, you know, the Almond Brothers really, when you when you peel the service back, is almost like a jazz band. And that's, you know, one of the things I think, you know, in, in the last couple of weeks, I've been sitting down with the, you know, the re-release of the blue, uh, the the DVD, of the Great Woods, and you know, some of the live material. Just actually this morning, watched Warren Haynes' Live at the Moody. Um, 
there's a lot of jazz influence in this band. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, was was jazz something you were into at all, or was that... Well, uh, no, yes. I mean, yes and no. <laughs> uh, eventually, yeah, definitely was into jazz, and I am now. I listen to a lot of it. But when I was first getting into the Allman Brothers, I really don't think I was into jazz. I think that, that came later. Mm-hmm. And they probably were like a gateway drug for me <laughs> right. to jazz, in fact. Um, you, you know, when you, when you get down to it. Uh I, I don't think I heard that then. I definitely hear that now. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I think the Allman Brothers, what makes them unique and did from the start is that they, they're sort of the intersection of so many things. Mm-hmm. So they, they have the uh, swing, the, the sort of mind expansiveness of, of jazz. They have like the power of rock with the big amps washing through your body and making you shake in that way we all know if you're listening right. to this, I imagine. And they have this sort of deep blues uh, thing that can grab you by the gut. So um, for me, they're always one of the only bands that worked on all those levels. Yeah, and I have to say the you know the, the blues thing is probably what kind of drew me in uh, to them more so. You know, because I you know I think we were all cognizant of the Grateful Dead, but the Grateful Dead really never did anything for me personally. You know, it was, you could appreciate the musicianship and and. You know, be kind of amazed at it, but I wasn't a big progressive rock fan, and the Dead really didn't do anything to me. But you know, the the Elmore James and the Willie Dixon influence is, is you know very obvious as well. So that you know kind of drew me in. How did you kind of get inside the walls of the Elmore Brothers? I mean, because for those who are not familiar with the book, we're looking at you know a, a several inches thick of essentially interviews um, with the band uh, and everybody with the band. People who are associated with the band, people aren't in the band anymore. Um, how did you get that kind of access? Well, it, it took a long time. <laughs> so what, 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 what you're seeing there is actually 25 years of work. Um, I started professionally covering the band uh, as a journalist in 1989, 1990, when they had just reformed. Mm-hmm. Warren Haynes was a new member, young guy. I didn't know who the heck he was mm-hmm. when I you know, first heard his name or saw him. And, um, you know, first wrote an article about them when Seven Turns came out. They were sort of a new band, a new version of this, you know, already venerable institution. And uh, then 1991, I started working at Guitar World magazine, and I had cause to write about them over and over because they had a really thriving career with records coming out every year or so on, on Epic. Uh, I was living in New York. Warren Haynes had recently moved to, was spending a lot of time there and then moved to New York. Uh, so I started getting to know him well. I developed a friendship with uh, the road manager of the band and eventually the manager. And so I just started being around a lot. So whenever they would come, I'd go. They played these extended runs at the Beacon, you know, which uh, yeah. we'll, we'll keep going, start again next week, 14 shows. They started doing those in 1992. I was pretty new, so I would hang around. So they were in New York then for a month or more, and they were just around. So I, you know, I'd have dinner eventually with Warren and Alan Woody and Kirk West, the road manager, and uh, through that, I just started to get to know people, mm-hmm. and so they got used to seeing me around. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah. It's not like I wrote about that stuff every time. I was just doing it because, yeah. uh, you know, it all started with the love of the music. Um, that's why I was there in the first place. And so the relationships just deepened. So then when I would go to do the interviews for the next time a, a record came out or whatever, right. I had this sort of deep well to draw on, this deep basis of, of information and friendship. Uh, and whatnot. So um, that was just where it began. It just kept going and going and going. Eventually, it's been 25 years yeah. of doing this. So when I went to um, write this book, 
you know, I had a huge volume of interviews to start with, but I also had all these relationships uh, where I could draw from to, um, you know, to, to, to pick up and to, to get more stuff and to get deeper and deeper. So sort of like the more you know, the more you can learn, Sure. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. Now, did you just go back and start listening to, you know, 1994 cassette tapes of interviews <laughs> to kind of do this? Uh, uh, yes, I did. Okay. Well, I did. I, it was, to be honest, it was a little bit of everything. Um, I did do that. I started by going through my actual written notes, going through the actual stories, putting that stuff together, then going back to the notes, scouring it for stuff that maybe I had talked about but not used, uh, and then going through closets full of cassettes and finding, uh, you know, things, going back and listening to them. In some cases, I would listen to a whole interview and just find one sentence that I would yeah. add. But uh, sometimes it was a great sentence. So I, you know, I took it all really seriously. And then I put that all together and I sort of made a list of where I wanted to go next, who else I needed to talk to. And my initial thought is that, you know, it would be relatively simple because I had done so much. Um, but that was sort of naive. So when I started making the list, I had uh, 50 people on it on a whiteboard behind my desk. Right. I'm looking at it right now, and most of them are crossed off. I left it up there <laughs> as, as, a, as a memory for myself. Um, and, in fact, a couple who aren't crossed off I did end up speaking with, but I never doubled back to. So, uh, you know, it was, it was just a very, very long, involved process. Um, yeah, I mean, because, you know, I, I look at it. You know, I, I've done interviews with, with countless people myself, and you sit down and do an interview, and it's, it's a 15, 20 minutes in time, and you might cover things that range 15 years. You know, I might ask a question about, you know, influences of an artist and then turn right to the new album. You know, where your book tells the story, you know, almost collectively by topic, you know, so it had to take a lot of work to kind of weave in, you know, the times right, well, and the places, and, you know. Yeah, well, I started with I started with everything I had. Like I said, I put it into a linear order, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I just kept adding. And then I started realizing when, when I started that process of adding, my thought was that I knew what. I needed to fill in, you know, okay, I, I got to talk to Chuck Lavelle about Jessica. And that's, that's an example of something I really did need to do. Right. Um, but when I started uh, doing the interviews, I realized basically it was arrogant for me to assume that I knew what I needed to do. I mean, right. the stuff that I knew, yeah, I got to do that, but that that's just the beginning. I have to open up my mind um, and, you know, see – what else there was. I have to open more doors, not just, you know, answer the questions I know are there. And I think that when it got more interesting, when the book started really getting deep is when it got interesting for me, when I started learning things I didn't know. Yeah. That's when things picked up. And, and as someone who knew, you know, I, I myself, you know, being a, a fan of the band, but I actually was more of a government mule fan. I kind of went backward uh -huh. towards the Elman Brothers. Uh, it was very educational because, you know, I really didn't know that much about Barry Oakley, for example, and, and to to hear the other musicians talk about his impact on the sound of the band, you know, everyone knew about Dwayne Allman. There, there was no real surprise in that. But you know, when you started to get into Alan Woody's influence in the band and, and his irritations and agitations, and, and you know, and, and really come to appreciate Warren's influence on the band, you know, long term is really right. where it to me got really, really educational and entertaining at the same time. 
All right. Well, thank you very much. And that's part of what I was trying to do. Uh, I think with, with Oakley, you know, to go back to that, it, it, what was really interesting is I, I always respected Barry very much. And I knew from talking to people all these years uh, how important people thought he was to the band, the original members did. Um, but even I was sort of taken aback as I, as I really did more interviews and, and, and wrote the book by the reverence with which people held Barry and sort of the, the, the disappointment that they felt uh, to some extent that, you know, he hadn't gotten his due. And so um, I did go out of my way really um, to make it clear to people to, 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 to bring that up. Right. Um uh, just how crucial he was. And, and it's not because it's not me editorializing when I do stuff like that. I mean, I tried to just tell the story sure. that I was reporting. And what I was picking up from talking to people is Barry Oakley was a huge part of this. He was incredibly important, and people mm -hmm. don't understand that. Yeah, and, so. and that, that did a great job on bringing that back. Um, I, I have to ask, uh, you know, probably, and I'm not sure exactly when you finished this book, but obviously with Warren and Derek's, uh, decision to uh, discontinue uh, is it touring or just playing all together right. with the band? In uh, well, they, they've announced they're not going to tour, which I guess more or less means play with the Allman Brothers after the end of this year. Yeah, and then you know I had read subsequently Greg saying that this was kind of it. I mean, do you do you feel that there's some validity to that, or is this you know maybe a time will tell, or they need some time away from it sort of situation? Well, when we hang up, I'm calling Warren, actually, to do an interview. <laughs> I'll have a little more clarity. Uh, I think that Derek and Warren have really made that decision. I don't think it's going to change. I think mm -hmm. that's something they've been thinking about uh, for quite a while, um, especially uh, Derek. I, I mean, he, he's made that clear to me for a while. I think that he really decided after the 40th anniversary, uh, which was in 2009, that if they made it five more years, which, you know, and, and given the history of the band, every year they, every show they play could be the last. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to some extent, that's the attitude they've all had. Um, but I think he decided if they make it five more years to the 45th, uh, that would be a good time to end it, which is, is this year. So I think that's been percolating for a while. I think Greg has backed off. He did say in one interview uh, that they would no longer tour. He's backed off of that. And, and, and you know, the, the original members who remain, which are, are Greg, Butch Trucks, and J-Mo, uh, are really not anxious to talk about it. I spoke to J-Mo the other day, and I spoke to Butch the other day, and they both basically said, we're happy to talk to you about anything, but we're not going to comment on the future because we just, you know, we're just not ready. Right. So uh, I'm not ready to say it's the end of the Allman Brothers. I think that, you know, with Derek and Warren Haynes, they've had a wonderful run for the past 14 years. Yeah. That seemed inconceivable. I mean, I couldn't imagine the band without the keypads. I was shocked when they decided to continue without him. Um, but they've really done it. It's been It's been excellent. And um, I don't know. I, nothing would surprise me, including you know a, a break and a return, or, or or that they this is really it. I guess wouldn't be a shock. No, um, would it be? Everything a shock? I've learned about the band and my in in the reporting just tells me that it's a mistake to ever count them out. Would it Would it be inconceivable to see Dicky returning to the fold at any point? It's not inconceivable, but it's unlikely. unlikely. <laughs> I believe it remains unlikely. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are asking me that, and I understand why. I mean, there's a lot of us who would love to see Dickie walk out on the stage, at the mm -hmm. beat, and I, I would certainly want to be in, this, in the crowd if that happens. Uh, 
but I don't I don't really see it happening. It, it, it doesn't seem I have had no indication it's on the verge of happening. No, yeah, especially when you you know you read some of the latter interviews, it seems you know people are yeah you know, kind of content with the way it is, you know, which which I guess is what it is. So, all right, sir. Well, I don't want to keep you from Warren Haynes. Uh, envious <laughs> of that, but I'll, I'll let you go. And I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's really my about. pleasure. You know, and, and uh, like we said at the beginning, I mean Pittsburgh is. Uh, you know, I mean, I haven't lived in Pittsburgh in almost 30 years, and it's still uh, very much my hometown. I consider it. My kids are all big-time Steelers and Pirates fans, and uh, it's just a, it's a part of me. So I'm, you know, happy to share this stuff with with people in Pittsburgh. It's an honor. All right, big thanks to Alan Paul again. The book's called One Way Out. It's available Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you name it. It's available from Hitting a Note. Dot com, which is kind of the de facto Allman Brothers Band website. Alan has been doing uh, book signings and radio promotions all over the country. It's been kind of neat to watch his fa- Facebook page. Uh, he's been on Imus's show, um, Geraldo Rivera. Uh, to see some of the people kind of come out of the woodwork as Allman Brothers fans has been kind of neat. Uh, and if, if you're a, you know, our show is obviously pretty hard rock and metal oriented, but uh, really, really some incredible musicianship in the Allman Brothers Band. Um, don't discount Southern Rock when it comes to musicianship. Uh, stellar Derek and Warren and Dickie and Greg and all the other great musicians in the band. So We're checking it out. Alright, the next interview, uh, Rich Engler who is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, one half of Caesar Engler Productions, which did many of the great concerts that came through uh, Pittsburgh area, Erie I believe as well. Um, really just a legacy of, of experiences Rich has had um, as someone who's been involved with live music uh, and bringing these events to Pittsburgh, which, you know, a lot of people think, boy, this is just a cash cow, but uh, as Rich would probably be the first to tell you, being a promoter is kind of like being a gambler. Um, you may make it big, you may lose your shirt on an event. Uh, you know, I think promoters are often criticized you know, as being the guy who takes the money for an event, but um, they're also the person that pays to have the facility rented, the people who work at the facility, um, and there's a lot of liability. You know, they're guaranteed to pay an artist whether anyone shows up or not. So you might book a a band in a 5,000 seat venue that turns out to be an ice storm, as most of you in the northeast of Pittsburgh of the United States are very well aware. The weather has just royally sucked this winter, so. You know, imagine having a, a, a venue that may only be half full because of bad weather. You know, or as he mentions in uh, in the uh, book, the Monsters of Rock tour, which you think about, you know, you look back for, for fans of this kind of music, Metallica, uh, Van Halen, Dokken, Kingdom Come, the Scorpions, he lost his shirt on that uh, event. You think, how, how do you lose, you know, how do you lose on something like that? You know, that kind of tour would bring in zillions of dollars today, but... You know, it's about knowing your market. It's about knowing what fans will buy, and, and it's it's not an exact science. So, really cool that Rich was uh, able to take the time out of his schedule and talk to us about his book. So, let's get into that interview with Eric and Rich Engler. Today on Iron City Rocks, we have Rich Engler, the concert promoter extraordinaire. How you doing, Rich? Hey, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thanks for uh, getting together with me. Let's have some fun. Yeah, sounds good. Nice, nice to talk to you. Hey, Rich, you, your, your career spans several decades. I guess it's about five now. Can, can you just get back, you know, back, take us back to, like, the 1960s when, when you uh, 
started out as, as, a, as a budding musician and just uh, walk us through a little bit how you became a concert promoter, how, that, how your life took that particular path, and uh, let's just dive right in. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Well, it was quite, uh, quite an experience from the beginning. I had a, a, a little uh, ensemble, it was called a combo. This was before the Beatles, it was uh, 1962-63, and uh, basically played uh, uh, Chuck Berry songs and old, old uh, uh, Booker T and EMG, Green Onions, and uh, Bill Haley and the Comets kind of things, and uh, we're starting to get a little bit uh, uh, better and, and uh, singing a little bit with, with the act, not myself, but other uh, others in the act, and uh, we uh, we started getting some gigs and uh, playing around, and, and uh, I bought a better set of drums and kept moving up, moving up the chain a little bit. And uh, move move some of the musicians around, and we got a, a whole lot better. And my my band, we changed the name to the to the uh, Grains of Sand uh, right after the Beatles came out because they changed the whole. That's like whenever the Beatles came to the United States and went on Ed Sullivan, it was like Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. This was right, yeah. this was like changing everything. So yeah. we had to we had to go into Plan B. Uh, and uh, start growing our hair and start singing and playing better songs. So uh, we got very good, and uh, my band started to really play everywhere, and I, I started to book your band and this person's band, and next thing I know, I had about 50 bands under my wings. So uh, uh, I started uh, my first company then, moving forward to 1969, Go Attractions. Uh, I was uh, I was able to... Uh, get a, a theatrical employment license and uh, started a business in Shadyside, Pennsylvania. And okay. uh, at that time then, after I was booking all these bands, I figured, well, maybe I should start booking larger acts, like national acts. So I called California, New York, uh, Chicago, and I had like acts like Chicago, uh, uh, Santana, Big Brother and the Holding Company, all these Quicksilver Messenger Service, Amboy Dukes out of uh, Detroit, all these different acts, and I started both those acts at colleges, and I started promoting. Then, uh, after I uh, did several of these shows, watching the colleges promote, I was then able to groom myself into being a promoter. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's how it evolved, and then in, then in later years, in nineteen uh, late late seventy three. Uh, Pat the Caesar and I got together and had a meeting, and we we forged a new company, the Caesar Engler. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure everybody's heard of, heard of the Caesar Engler. How can you not around here? Oh yeah, for sure. And then uh, moving moving forward from there, we uh, after after starting to promote for the first few years with the Caesar Engler, it really caught fire, and uh, we were able to uh, purchase the Stanley Theater downtown Pittsburgh, which is now the Benetton Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, we turned that dying movie house into the number one theater in the country. It right. was, uh, it was, uh, we were, were awarded several number one uh, place uh, trophies uh, for uh, theaters of its kind across the United States. So we beat out Radio City Music Hall, uh, the 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 Kyle Palace in San Francisco, all of them. It was, it was, it was terrific. What What do you feel uh, made the Stanley? 
uh, able to do what it did, you know, to make it to make it such a strong performer. And, and uh, well, the you know, Stanley Stanley had thirty five hundred seats, which was a big, big theater, and there weren't that many big theaters like that in in the country. So bands loved to come in there, and because it was one, it was gorgeous and mm-hmm. and a beautiful place to play. It, the sound was excellent, and there was a big gross because. Even with those low ticket prices, with 3,500 seats, you could still get a pretty decent gross, and it was a pretty nice payday for these acts, and they loved it. So sure. they just all wanted to play there. We had the Grateful Dead play there, Bob Dylan played there, you know, Queen, Sticks, Kansas, you know, on and on and on. Uh, everybody wanted to play there. James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, you know, on and on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's you have a very long laundry list of who's who's been in and out uh, that you've been a part of. Now, now through the decades, um, you know what? If you could, if you could just run down, you know, just summarize or however you want to do it, uh, the various decades that you've promoted concerts. You know, like how how, how was it in like the seventies and the eighties for you? You know, how, well, how in the beginning, in the beginning, it was like uh, it was. Make love, not war. Peace, love, and sunshine. Uh, you know, spread the music, spread the news. This was our generation. This was our music. We wanted to get the message out. Uh, it wasn't as much about the money as it was playing playing our songs, playing the songs that were sending out our generation. And after time, after time and time and, and productions and, and acts, Acts grew, and the the road crews grew, and the the sound and the lights and the stages. It started to become a multi-billion-dollar business because now um, many more acts were going on the road. The record companies were thriving in the uh, uh, '80s, and uh, it, there was you know a multitude of tra- attractions that you could make money on, and we were bringing them all in. Mm-hmm. It was great. Yeah. After we not 80s, only did we not only did Pittsburgh shows in Pittsburgh, we were very very big in Erie, Johnstown, uh, Harrisburg, Hershey, Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton, all those all those towns uh, throughout Pennsylvania, West Virginia, uh, Charleston, Huntington, uh, in Ohio, Columbus, uh, Akron, Canton, all those. Youngstown, mm-hmm. we promoted everywhere. Right, you weren't just Pittsburgh; you were you were more of a regional, you know, a large large regional and, promoter. Right, and we were able to get a couple of national tours. Uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive, back in the day, whenever they had taken care of business, we brought them into Three River Stadium, World Series of Rock, did big business, and they they liked the way we we did business, so uh, we mounted a ten fifteen uh, city tour, went up upstate New York and. Uh, Rochester, Syracuse, Binghamton, and then down, 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 down toward the uh, down the East Coast, and mm-hmm. uh, of course came back to Pittsburgh again. And then we also had the whole East Coast tour from uh, New York to Florida uh, for Shanana. In their heyday, they you know they had a big TV show, and we were right there at the right time and was able to snag a, a great tour. Yeah. In, in Kansas too, didn't you do some significant things to help them um, make a big, big name for themselves? I'm sorry. 
You with me in Kansas too, didn't didn't you do some some big things and like with their there was a, something about their first show and I think it was like the biggest. Uh, oh yes, yes, that was uh, it, it was Queen Sticks in Kansas down at the uh, Stanley, and at the last minute, Queen had some some problem. I think Freddie had throat problems or whatever, so it catapulted Kansas into a headline situation. And I asked them if they'd play a little longer, and Sticks would play a little longer, and they did. And this is like the first time Kansas came came out to the East, and uh, they were like shocked with the reception they were getting. Every song, people were going crazy, and uh, they came off of their encore, and they said, "What's going on? These people love us." I said, "Yeah, yeah your record's real big here," and. Uh, so I was able to get that record around a couple months earlier, and and that they never knew it. And I said, "Well, you need to go out and play." Can I tell you? And they go, "We don't even know that. We don't we don't play that song anymore." I said, "You have to play it. That's the that's the biggest song in the city here right now." So they said, "Oh, so they they huddled together. They go, okay, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll do it." So they went back out and played. Can I tell you? And that was the that was the birth of a of a major major act. For, for Pittsburgh, and they call it their second home. I'll tell you, yeah. uh, as the as we move forward, just this last year uh, in, in uh, 2013, I promoted the one and only uh, show in the whole whole world, their 40th anniversary fan appreciation concert at the uh, Stanley, where it all started, and uh, fans came from, like I said, all over the world, 13 different countries and 37 different states. It was a, it was this a wonderful event. I I, I brought in a uh, forty five piece symphony orchestra too that played with them for the first half. Oh wow! Yeah, that would have been spectacular. Yeah, I got to see them on the prior tour in two thousand twelve, and and it was you know, but it it wasn't going to be like what you just described. You know, it was but it was still great. I still enjoyed it. You know. Um, but, yeah, I'm uh, looking to maybe bring them back this uh, this. Uh, Next uh, fall, maybe, or or maybe like November or something like that. November, December. I don't want to bring them back too soon, but uh, right. um, I'm working on a, a package, real nice package. So, do you think that might be surprised if you hear it? Or I mean, the Benetton? Uh, yes, it would be. Yeah. Oh, great! You know, I'll have to try to see if I can make that. That that sounds really good. Now, now you'd mentioned before, you know, just briefly about how, you know, Freddie Mercury, for example, couldn't sing or, you know, due to an issue. Like, how is a promoter, how how, how are you, how, what what enables a promoter to just think on his feet so quickly and, and solve problems like that? You know, your book runs down many, which we'll get into a little bit, you know, runs down many examples of how you, you solve a lot of problems. How, how are you so good at it? Uh, that, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I did. I, it's I I I never panic. I try to stay calm, and uh, there's never a problem. There's always a solution, and uh, I you know there's no rule of thumb of how you're going to solve it. But it, it, it when it comes up, you need to you know you need to do it do it fast because sometimes there are people uh, you know waiting in line to come into the facility or the facility's already full and there's a snafu. So. You just have to roll with it and be quick on your feet, quick in your head. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, um, you're, Rich, you just put out a book, of course. Um, I'm not sure when it actually came out. Within the last three months, I'd say, behind the stage. Uh, no, December 5th it came out. Oh, December 5th, okay. Uh, yep. Yeah, my wife got it for me for Christmas. I, I had heard a little bit about it, and, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. My wife's, I think, just now finishing up reading it herself. But uh, it, it's just an amazing book of your, you know, basically telling your whole story as a concert promoter and, a, and as a musician. Um, just uh, after all these years, what what uh, made you sit down and, and write a book? Well, I had I had all these memories and uh, uh, stories, and probably more uh, traumatic experiences that needed to be reduced to writing. And oh, yeah. uh, and every time I tell my buddies these stories, you know, we'd be going fly fishing or somewhere and golfing and I tell these stories they go man Rich you gotta write a book and I, yeah. after you hear that for so many times so many years you, I, I, I said I'm gonna write the book so it took me about three years to write the book uh, and many edits many manuscripts proofreading and and editing and finally uh, finally I you know I was uh, hell bent on getting it out for the holidays so uh, it's that that was my plan, and sure enough, I made it. Yeah, yeah. What's well, it's an excellent book. Um, you know, there's there's just thank you very much. Lot, I'm glad yeah, you're a lot of it, it. A lot of it's traumatic. Oh, I've got yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. I couldn't put it down. Um, just some <laughs> hilarious things and just some some terrible things. Um, but, yeah, uh, and I, I I tried to get that emotion in there. You know, if so, yeah. So, you know, you get up and and laugh laugh so much on some of it almost cry on others and and uh that's 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 what I try to try to do and it, thank goodness it's working. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I I don't want to, you know, get too much into the content of the book. I mean, if you want to see what's in it, go go buy it and read it, but I mean, I just I know that uh being on the concert going side of it, I can well, I do I did see one of the ticket stubs for one of the concerts I was at and and, and there wasn't even anything in the book about that particular concert having an issue. I don't think it had any issues that, you know, to speak of, but um, you know, I do remember some of the uh, one act in particular who uh, didn't honor his contracts a lot, and I think I was on the receiving end of that one time, wanting to see that act perform, and uh, he didn't show, and it might have been at that concert. And I don't, I don't want to divulge too much, but you know, I just remember, you know, some of the some of those kinds of things, like, hmm, why is that? And this 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 explained a lot of things. Yeah, well, I I also wanted a, a, a book that's not like the t- typical paperback book that has a few uh, little little pictures in it. I I wanted to I wanted to uh, put a put a book together that had 300 plus photographs, diagrams, ticket passes or ticket tickets and stage passes and diagrams, ad mats uh because th- some of those ad mats are hilarious uh, uh, when you see the chili peppers played at a little club and i mean it, it brings back such memories to me i i'm hoping it does to everybody else right and i just i just love like the fonts that were used in the 1970s you know that you that just you can you can tell when something was printed a lot of times just by how it looked you know and and uh you know you could just tell that it's it's dated and it's really interesting i mean you you probably have whole whole walls plastered with this stuff at home. Or <laughs> I have, well, boxes. I have a lot, of, a lot of things in boxes and crates and everything. And I never considered myself a pack rat or a hoarder, but I, I guess I, uh, these were, you know, after I'd come home from the show, I'd 99% of the time would be wearing the past. 
and so I did take it off and throw it in a box. Yeah, yeah. You just have. You, I'm sure you have thousands of those. You know, just you know, backstage and you know, different different things like that. Yeah, and the book's beautiful too. I mean, it, it took you three years to write it, but I'm sure much of that also was just putting it together creatively and choosing what you know what pictures and and graphics and things like that needed to go in. I mean, it's it's beautiful and it's it's fun to read. So I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, well, so where can people get it? Right. I mean, I, I know my, I think my wife got it at Giant Eagle, but uh, can, is that where where else can you get it if, if uh, you're not? Well, it's so select Giant Eagles. Uh, about it's about sixty sixty two Giant Eagles from all the way from Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, all the way down to uh, uh, Washington, PA, and 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 throughout. Um, Crazy Mocha's, which is a coffee shop, coffee shops in in and around the city. Uh, Pittsburgh Guitars on the south side. Oh. And uh, 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 amazing books downtown and Pittsburgh guitars. But the easiest way is uh, my website. Um, I sign and autograph each book that comes through the website, and I can personalize it also if the person asks through the site. It's uh, www.richengler.com, and it's R I C H E N G L E R dot com. So. Um, that, and that's it. I also started, uh, you know, I had a non-compete for the longest time, and um, I now started to promote again. I did that Kansas show. I did the Greg Allman show, and I have some others coming up. I'm doing the, uh, you know, it just so happened this year, uh, 2014, is the 50th year for the Beatles coming to the United States. Oh, the yeah. actual date. The actual date uh, when they... Uh, they came to the United States was February 9, 1964, and the show I have is uh, on February 19, uh, uh, 2014, which is 50 years, and um, it's a it's called All You Need Is Love. It's a tribute to the Beatles and uh, doing their Love Live uh, concert, uh, uh, 20 musicians on stage, a national touring company, and it's down at the Byam Theater. And um, it's going to be a great show, and it it just went on sale, so uh, great seats still available, and um, uh, you can get tickets at uh, trustarts.org, trustarts.org for that okay. show. There's also a an event at the Hard Rock coming up, right? The the, the uh, Hall of Fame event. Oh wow! Yes, I was uh, I got a call. Uh, a few months ago that uh, they said, Rich, uh, we'd like to tell you that you're going to be the first person inducted into the Pittsburgh Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, uh, wow, I was just uh, shocked emotionally. and <laughs> It was just uh, an exciting, exciting moment. And I, I, it's coming up this Thursday down at the Hard Rock. And um, well, I um, deserve it. I just, uh, well, thank you. I, they didn't tell me what's going to go on. It's all going to be a surprise. I'm still Someone's going to jump my... out of a cake? <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll pick up the cake like Clapper did and said. That was outrageous, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's some funny stuff. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's going to be, a, be a, a, a great event. I think there's still some tickets available for that, too. It's going 
all the uh, profits uh, go right to the bottom line, go to the Cancer Caring Center, and you can get those tickets at the Cancer Caring Center dot 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 org. Yeah, Cancer Caring Center dot org, and mm-hmm. that's going to be fun. I know, I do know that Donnie Iris is going to perform Joe Gershecki, B.E. Taylor, uh, uh, some of the Clarks. It's it's supposed to be Herman Gernotti. A lot of lot of lot of good fun stuff. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the big names that we all know and love. Yeah, that's correct. That's that's great. That's great. Well, Rich, I appreciate take. Uh, I don't want to take any more of your time. I, I was it was awesome talking to you, and I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Uh, well, thank you. I uh, thank you, and uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, let's stay in touch. Uh, thank you so much. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of episode 231 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. We invite you to visit us at ironcityrocks.com, facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks, and twitter.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Also, we'd love to hear from you, ironcityrocks at gmail.com. We uh, always read and answer every uh, piece of mail, good, bad, or ugly. So we'd love to hear from you. What do you like about the show? What do you dislike about the show? Where do you listen to the show? Do you listen to the show? I guess so if you're hearing this. Uh, Any feedback is fantastic, though. Uh, It shows that you care, and that's what we want. So invite you to check out, as I mentioned also at the top of the show, heavymetalbookclub.com, which is our sister show. Uh, If you're interested in these types of interviews like on this episode, uh, that's the place to go. We've got an absolutely killer interview coming up with an author who is sure to be uh, on the bestsellers list. Uh, coming up very soon so you want to check that out as well Uh, and again we will be back in time uh, with more interviews also just one late breaking piece of news and a congratulations to Alan Uh, I spoke to him before the book was released the book did make the uh, top 10 bestsellers list so congratulations to Pittsburgh's own bestseller Alan Paul so without further ado we will talk to you next time take care